welcome to Keep the Bastards Honest, the podcast of the Australian Democrats. I'm your host, Alana Mitchell, and on this episode, the kids are all right. This was supposed to be our third episode of the podcast, but it got overtaken by the resignation of Gladys Berejiklian and then got delayed by events. Again, this time it was events of the fundraising kind. I had the great pleasure of hosting the inaugural event from our fundraising team, where Dr. Nathan Bell from Melbourne University joined us to deliver a talk on his book, Refugees Towards a Politics of Responsibility. And my co-host, Steve Beatty, hosted South Australian State President, Dr. Roger Yazbek, who delivered the Australian Democrats' plan for future health challenges. If you missed out on either or both of these events, they might turn up as future podcast episodes, so stay tuned. Our next event will be National President Lynn Allison in conversation with former Supreme Court Justice Stephen Charles on accountability, which should be a riveting discussion. Check out our What's On page on our website, democrats.org.au, for details. Today, I'm chatting with two of our incredible young Democrats, Bianca Hojavin and Rhiannon Kernow about the challenges and frustrations their generation are facing and why it's important for them to get involved in politics. Both Rhiannon and I had some issues with our audio, so we had to switch to backup devices and the audio isn't quite 100% in some places, so my apologies for that. Hopefully you'll enjoy listening to this chat as much as we enjoyed recording it. Rhiannon, Bianca and I pay our respects to the traditional owners of the lands on which we met and their elders past and present. Sovereignty never ceded. Welcome to Keep the Bastards Honest. Young Democrats, Bianca Hogaveen and Rhiannon Kerno. Hello. Hi. I'm so glad to have you on here, and I'm very excited to discuss the perspective on politics through the eyes of the young Democrats. Now, Rihanna, before we go down that particular rabbit hole, I feel like we need to sort of address the elephant in the room, which is the fact that you are a Kerno. I am. I am a Kerno. So it's, <laughs> it has been a bit of an elephant since I joined the party. Obviously, Cheryl Kerno was a former leader of the Australian Democrats and quite a notable one at that. So I do get a lot of questions about my last name. I'm actually not related to Cheryl, but I have actually interviewed her and I interviewed her a little while ago back in year 12. She very clearly told me that I should not join a political party at all until I at least finished uni. So I'm in my second year of uni and I've been with the party a year now. So I clearly didn't follow that advice. I'm so sorry, Cheryl. But I think speaking to her gave me so much insight and so much actual inspiration for what I could do for myself in actually being more active that I couldn't not really that is incredible. So, okay, I, I feel like there's a sort of generation of listeners who'll be going, what? It's good to know that we do actually have a concrete link between Kerno the Elder and Kerno the Younger and that you at least have met and interviewed her and, and she's given you advice about politics, which you then probably ignored. Good for you. Yes, yes. <laughs> that's awesome. So that's a, probably a great segue. And I'll start with you, Bianca. Why is it that you guys lean to the Democrats as as a party? Why not the Young Liberals or the Young Labour or the Greens or some other party? It was always definitely a no 
for liberals for me. <laughs> and yeah, I was sort of looking at the Greens and I was discussing with my parents. Um, I really want to, I want to do something actionable and something I, I can actually do to make a really big difference or I feel like I'm making a big difference really. And so we got talking about political parties and mum and dad were always huge fans of the Democrats. They were around in our peak, um, around the time of, you know, Natasha Stott Spoyer and and Cheryl Kerno as well. And mum showed me pictures of Natasha in, in docks in Parliament and I thought that was sick. So I was really inspired by that. Went to the Democrats page because I I wasn't I just wasn't fully convinced on any of the major parties because there was just something I was compromising every single time. And then I came to the Democrats and it was just, it just made sense. But no, it did, it did just, it made sense. There was the transparency, which honestly is really important for me if you're going to run a country and look after 25 million people, you have to be transparent about what you're doing. You can't hide behind anything. And then obviously the environment. My mum packed everything in in containers as kids. We never got glad wrap. So the environment has always been a huge focus in our family, even though my dad's a mining engineer. So I've always had, I've always had a focus on, you know, wanting to do good really. And this seemed like it made the most sense. I have to say, as an older Democrat, that really just makes me so happy because the young Democrats are our future in, in more ways than one. Proud, I, I can't tell you how excited and proud I am of the incredible team of young Democrats that we have with us now. It's just, I mean, you guys are, are just representatives of a much bigger team who are just as extraordinary. So, Rian, back to you. You ignored Cheryl's advice. Yes. Why was it that you were interviewing her? So I was interviewing her for my year 12 subject, Society and Culture, and you basically work on this personal interest project over a whole year. Um, it's very sociology focused. So I was looking at a brilliant sociologist, Ray Connell, her theory of hegemonic masculinity, and I was applying that into Australian federal politics. And when I started going into that, Cheryl's name just kept popping up all over the place because she's actually very clearly actually addressed this issue of masculinity and the impact that it has on both the men and women in politics. You see it now of the kind of toxic culture that is built into kind of the foundations of of politics. But for me, I reached out to her. She went, oh, I think the last name was like, oh, that's very odd to be receiving an email from you as well. So maybe that got me the interview. But I ended up speaking to her and she was just so insightful on kind of the reality of politics over so much time. And she, she was so up to date still. And she hadn't been in politics for a while and was just so informed. And she really told me about the reality that Parliament isn't a place built for women. It's a place where the temperature of the room is set at 21 degrees and that's the perfect temperature for men in suits. Already you're sitting in a room that you're uncomfortable in. The height of the seats are actually too high for most women. So your feet actually dangle. You, you, your feet aren't even grounded on the floor. The Westminster style of Parliament is actually set up in an argumentative and style, which is directly related to actually support male aggressiveness against each other. So already you're sitting in a building which isn't that old and it's not built for you. So I went, how how do I see the future of politics for myself? How do I look at that place and go, that's somewhere I would want to be or my daughter would want to be or even my mum would want to be because I'm not welcome there 
And for me, I couldn't just keep watching all these different stories come out of sexual assault allegations or just this toxic culture within that place and just kind of sit on the sidelines anymore. And one of the big things for me was I I hate the divisiveness of politics. I don't think it's productive. I don't think it it gives a good representation of what we should be as Australians. I don't like the Greens for that reason because I feel like they're so far over. I don't like Liberals because they're that far over. And I think Labor, I don't even know where they sit anymore. I don't think they know where they sit anymore because it's just, it's all over the place. So when I was really trying to look and I went, what's actually a centrist party that is going to kind of offer me that removal from divisiveness and also has a great history, climate change policy, great history of representation of women alongside numerous other fantastic policies that kind of went along with that and it just checked all the boxes for me. Yeah, it was kind of too good to be true. I went, okay, no worries and applied that day. I just want to say that if, if there are any other Kernos out there, clearly we are your natural home. Do come along and join us. And you raised two incredibly important points there is that the Democrats were the first political party in Australia to have a female leader. And we managed that back in 1986. That was Janine Haynes. And we were also considered the first environment party in that we were talking about the environment back in the 1980s. And one of our senators was key in getting the Franklin Dam listed as a World Heritage Site. Colin introduced the the legislation to Parliament and, and got it passed with Bob Hawke. And the Greens as a party weren't formed until the early 90s. So we sort of you know led the way on both environment and on strong female leadership. And we've had, a, I think, and this might be a walk of shame, but it'll teach me not to do my research before I do a podcast. We've had at least six, possibly seven female leaders over the course of, of our party's history. And we are, in fact, led by Lynn Allison, who currently a national president and a former parliamentary leader herself. One of the things that I um, wanted to bring you guys on to talk about was was the whole women in politics thing. And, and as young women at uni and, and sort of beginning your careers, so to speak, why getting involved in politics is important to you, particularly in light of the extraordinary revelations around Brittany Higgins and particularly Grace Tame, who was another extraordinary young female leader. I think there's a narrative in the media of young women being discouraged from entering into politics and you two have sort of bucked the trend and stepped up and and not just joined the party, you've taken a very active role in the party as emerging leaders of the Young Democrats. Actions have always spoken louder than words. You, you, You can say sorry to someone, but if you don't actually change afterwards and you you don't work to do better it, it means nothing it's just a word sort of a thing so for me it's it's hard still watching the stuff that comes out of it the way that Sarah Henson Young is treated still to this day and the way she was treated a couple of years ago the documentaries that come out about women in politics particularly that came out this year were shocking and they make you shed a tear and they make you really mad but for me it's it's channeling that anger and and doing something with it um, rather than just letting it fester and become I'm not allowing it to become toxic or anything like that just really just trying to do something with it within Australia we're ranked fifth 50th in the world for our level of representation of women in parliament I would love to say that's purely because of just the way it looks now But I think it is something that's continuously changing. I am seeing a lot of change, so I am quite hopeful that there are a lot more people 
young women like Bianca and myself who are interested and can see that as a future. But I think it's just kind of putting that hand up and going, I could do this and actually seeing that. A lot of the time now as well, the representation that we're getting and this is kind of part of my research, that the representation we're getting is not a diverse collection of women, that we are getting women who prescribe to very male attitudes or masculine ways of presenting. You know, I, I did an analysis of even Julia Gillard's speeches over her time in Parliament and from her first speech to her last speech, actually the language that she was using was increasingly more and more masculine. There was more terms of aggressiveness that it was more driven by ideas of war or defence and policy issues that you would typically prescribe to men, but those increasingly became apparent as the longer she was in Parliament, basically. And I think it's that that also needs to change, that we need to have a more open outlook to what does a woman look like in a leadership position. Jacinda Ardern, I think, is doing a fantastic job for what that looks like, that a leader can hug someone. I can't ever imagine Scott Morrison hugging me. You can really um, shake hands with someone, let alone hug. I know, after absolute devastation. And could barely shake someone's hand but what does that actually look like and I think it's actually changing that idea of what it means to be a leader that also has to happen so I think I see in the Democrats I see Lynn I see yourself a lot I see some really fantastic women who are stepping up and are really changing my perception of what it can mean to be a leader and it's not just wearing a pantsuit it's wearing a pink dress like Julie Bishop or anything like that I, th- I think that's what we need to see change in as well I'm hopeful about it at the very least. Watching what Julia Gillard went through, I think it has taken the country a good, well, it's not been quite a decade, but it's close to it, I think to really come to grips with that period because I would be fascinated to see how much of the increasing masculinity of her language over the course of her prime ministership, how much of that was shaped by the extraordinary misogyny and sexism she was subject to and the pressure to mould herself into being this this sort of more masculine vision of a prime minister because the country clearly could not cope with the idea of having a female prime minister at that time. And I really hope that over the the eight years or so since then, we're starting to have a reckoning on that and starting to, particularly with extraordinary examples like Jacinda Ardern, Angela Merkel in Germany, even Kamala Harris in in the US, that female leadership, it is a different form of leadership, but it's not lesser and in some ways is greater than male leadership. And it's not just diversity of gender that we need in the parliament, because you, you look at the men in parliament and the diversity among men is, is very limited as well. They're all lawyers, they're all economists, they're all university-educated middle-aged white men. We have a dearth of men from working-class backgrounds or lower socioeconomic backgrounds, never mind the dearth of a diversity of men of colour and Uh, gender orientation and sexuality. A huge part of the problem for us is that our parliament is very non-diverse on every level. It's very able-bodied too. I know there's there's Jordan in in the Greens. I know like he's he's done a lot of of really great work. There's just such a lack like it's very one flavour sort of a thing. It's not a fair representation of, of Australia. Like that's what it comes down to. It's well, 15% of Australians um, 
have a disability of some description and I can guarantee that we do not have that level of representation within Parliament whatsoever. Nowhere, nowhere even close to that. That Jordan has single-handedly had to carry kind of and be the spokesperson of that and really that's the only person we now know the name of to be able to reference is pretty poor form on Australia's behalf really. We hear reflections around the difficulties of entering into that space where you don't have any level of accessibility or they're literally building ramps as he's trying to get into parliament it's disappointing and that Mm. that's still what we're looking at and there's still that lack of consideration there the the idea that the um you know the parliament of australia is not what am i trying to look for that that is not sort of disability friendly so to speak disability accessible is the word i'm looking for that, you know, they have had to build ramps in the chambers for him to be able to move onto the Senate floor or that there are doorways in Parliament House that he's scraping his fingers on as he wheels himself through because they're too narrow for his wheelchair. It's shameful. I mean, this is the nation's house. And granted, yes, it was built back in the 80s, but we didn't think of that at the time. Like it never occurred to anybody involved in that process to think that we may not have an able-bodied parliamentarian one day, it's it's awful. Because yeah, we're a bit more worried about what colour the marbling was going to be at the front than we were about how somebody was actually going to get to the Senate floor that didn't look like the architect did. And that's as simple as it is, that for so long that parliament has only had one reflection of itself. It only looks like one way when they peer into the mirror. Hopefully that's changing, I suppose. At the very least, hopefully it's changing. I think it is a little bit. Our Senate representation is looking a lot better at the moment. House of Representatives still really dragging us down. But the Senate, which ironically or or perfectly has always the house of the Australian Democrat. That's kind of where we found a place, but it's also where women have interestingly found a place. I do see that as a little bit of a flaw in some senses that a lot of the time the Senate is seen as the secondary. It's not the it's not the face of Parliament. A lot of the time that it is the it's just the approval process a lot of people kind of see it as. It's de- it's not where our Prime Minister is, so it's never your top leader. It's not your cabinet or anything like that. So it is often seen as this secondary thing and still women are being pushed into that secondary spot or at least what people perceive as the secondary spot. And that's the next thing that then has to change, that how do we actually get women into those top leadership positions? So it may look like we've reached the quotas or anything like that, but how many women are actually in our cabinets? How many women are actually representing us internationally? It's not fantastic. And it's 2021. Like, why are we, you know, I, I feel deep frustration that we're even having this conversation in 2021. I mean, I, I attended the March for Justice in Perth back in March, and one of the amazing things that came out of that movement was all of the very elderly ladies holding signs saying, I'm 90-something years old, why am I still protesting this? On the one hand, it gives me enormous hope and enormous pride to see your generation manifesting your anger constructively and stepping up, but it breaks my heart that you have to. Yeah. Let's move out a bit broader now and look at your generation as a whole. Why do you guys think it's important for people of your generation to get involved in politics? I don't think it's actually for the women's rights. I don't think it's actually even for the environment. I I don't think there's any one issue that we can put it down to, and I think we, we probably need to stop putting it down to one issue. One of the best examples from one of our young Democrats was... When I, I, I do the interviews for the Young Democrats, and I, I absolutely love that because I, I actually get to speak to them and kind of see, you know, 
what brought you here? And I, I was asking him, what's some of the issues that you're actually really interested in? And he said, oh, look, there, uh, look, there's quite a few. I don't know. I don't know. And I went, oh, are you interested in the environment? That's what he went, yeah, sort of. I live with my grandparents, though. Or I want my grandparents to live with me and they're currently stuck in the aged care facility and they've been telling me how they're actually treated there and it's it's pretty horrible. And I think very clearly in that moment I went, this is actually the broader reason why people of our age are interested. Not just because it's a young person's in- issue and we're interested about our future, but because we actually have a different perspective to the same issues that every single Australian is dealing with. It's just a different, it's just a different viewpoint. The aged care, you're looking at that, that that's your grandparents and you care about what the end of their life looks like for them. Not because you're going to end up there. I don't even think we're thinking of it at that point, but it doesn't mean that you don't care about that and how that does actually impact on someone you love. the, The environment, yes, we care about it for our future, but we also care about it for every Australian and what that looks like. I live in a mining town. And if if that shuts down, a lot of industries shut down. So I, I try and look at go, what are the impacts of these of these broader decisions we're making in the different conversations? And what does that look like for me as a young person who works at the local shop or that my sister it works at the childcare centre down the road? And what does that look like when all the families have to move out and she no longer has a job there? there there's so many broader issues that as a young person, it's just a different perspective on so many of the issues that we all face and we all look at and we all deal with it's not just environment or women's issues or all those things that we kind of get labeled with because yeah you're right there there is this um narrative in the media that young people are getting political because of climate change and because of they don't want to live on a dead planet and they're not wrong i mean that is a clear narrative thread but what i have found fascinating working with the young dems as a group is that that is just the tip of the iceberg and then in, in many cases... It's melting, you, I suppose, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That, no, no, no. Good point. You know, but as you said, like, you know, that is, in many cases with the team that's joined us, that's not even in the top three of issues as, as to why they've come to us. And for listeners who are not members of Democrats and not aware of, of where the, the young Dems fit in, we, we sort of created a team of young Dems so that you had peers that you could speak to, peers that you could collaborate with and basically serve as advisors to the party as a whole on the issues that were important to you as the younger generation and the the generation that we hope to not only hand the planet over to but hand the party over to in the years to come. And the advice we've gotten from you as a whole has been absolutely extraordinary because it does run, run the gamut between things like aged care, environment is an obvious thing, through to things like one of our young Dems, Adrian, not only did a submission to the Productivity Commission's inquiry into the right to repair issue, he was then summoned to the commission and made to present to them. And they ended up referencing his submission about 20 times in their final report. And it shows the passion and the broad array of issues that are really driving young people today. And in terms of, you know, we talked about representation in federal parliament earlier. There is, apart from Jordan Stiljean, who is both representative of the disabled community and also young people because he is quite young. He's carrying a big load there, to be honest. I think think at one stage the aged care minister uh, was also the minister for youth or some weird thing where we had a a middle-aged white man looking after the, the older generations but also apparently representing our younger generations and no one 
seem to think that was weird. Tony Abbott being the Minister for Women. Oh. Yeah, yeah, that, there's those sort of juxtapositions that you look at and go, that doesn't seem right. I just wonder, I always wonder on those, who checked that off? Like, I don't know who actually, what was the approval process for that? Because surely that was not a long enough meeting. I'm sure you all wanted to get home, but surely you needed a, a little bit longer to think about that one. You know, you get the sense with Scott Morrison that he doesn't change breakfast cereal without getting it focus grouped to death. And yet they didn't focus group Tony Abbott becoming Prime Minister for Women? Or... I don't know, finding a, 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 well, at the very least, a younger member of the party to represent young people in our pilot, it's, it's baffling to me. But it, it, I guess it shows what they value and those are things that they do not value. They value, you know, the hot button issues that will get them votes. I do also think that because for so long that's all that Australia has seen in Parliament that I think that's kind of been legitimised also within the voting system as well, just because that's what you expect of your leaders, that that's all you're actually going to vote for. So that itself takes a, a while to actually change the culture there and it becomes a little bit of a chicken and the egg that the par the parties put in the person they think is going to be the right fit but really it's only what's going to get the approval but that's not necessarily what Australia needs even though I think there is the, the thought that that is, it, it's this really difficult kind of culture to change that we're only just at, at the, the melting tip of the iceberg of. This sense of, of the voters elect the government that they want, but we elect the people that are presented to us kind of thing. So it is a real, as you said, chicken and egg scenario. Just in terms of why it's so important for young people, for me, like it's, you know, we, we, we see that broad range of issues. We see housing affordability and climate change, everything from period poverty to you know, right to repair sort of a thing. Like there's so many things. And sometimes I think young people can look at that and just get completely overwhelmed. And there is an expectation sometimes that young people do have to be completely literate on these issues. And I don't think that's helpful either because, you know, God knows I've still got so much to learn and I'll, I'll mess up along the way. Like we need to realise the power that we have. We we may not be perfect in every sense and, you know, experts on everything, but we we are so incredibly awesome at, at getting things done if we want them to. And I think that's why it's so important to shift that energy and that desire to do good into something like a political party because we, we visibly can make a difference. And the climate strikes that Greta started, all that sort of a thing. Like we have so much power that we're just, we can utilise in such a really, really progressive way. Greta's a perfect example of what I kind of see as the, the very first step of the equation. That's the, the getting the, the immediate voice out there. It's raising awareness of what the issues kind of are. But I think in actually getting involved politically, that's the next step to it, that mm -hmm. it's actually turning this anger that we might have into some level of action. And I think that's actually where that's what we need to do and that's why I, I love seeing so many amazing, brilliant young people joining the party and actually valuing and, and knowing that they have value to add to something that's bigger than they are their piece in the puzzle is so, so important. And I, I very much see us as, as a voice, whether it's to the party, but hopefully to something that is a bit bigger as well than just even the Australian Democrats. It's, it's that next step of actual actionable change. And for me, it is that politics almost adds that it's another type of, of 
protest almost in a sense. Like I think it is another way to have that conversation that I think it does, it's actually actionable. It is tangible in a different way than going and helping out at a community pantry. You can go do that and I go to the community pantry and try and help out as much as I can and that face-to-face is one way to help but if you're not addressing kind of the systemic inequalities that are actually built into our legal system and built into kind of the social systems that we are so grounded in how are we ever going to move past that because we shouldn't be relying on a community pantry to actually feed someone we should be looking and going well how do we address that within our governments and within our our social systems Um, yeah why do we have a community pantry yeah like actually what, what is the whys that we're trying to answer there? And I think that's where kind of politics does actually come into it. And so you hear so much negative kind of stereotyping around what do politicians even do? What's the point of politics? I don't understand it. But there is, at least I definitely believe that there is change to be made there. And if we don't make change there, then there's no point to anything else. There's no point to the community pantry. There's no point to the food banks or to homeless shelters there's no point to anything you've ever charity you've made a donation to there's no point in actually helping out your neighbor because ultimately your neighbor can't drive on the road to get to their place of work and you won't be able to help out your neighbor because of that so we have to actually have the voice in both levels whether it's that micro community level or your macro political system as well i saw a thing on facebook this morning which of course i've forgotten exactly what it said but the gist of it was we are socialised not to talk about politics or religion. And this serves us really badly because we're not given the tools to have civil discussions about difficult topics. Politics touches every aspect of our lives, whether it's something as banal as determining your car registration through to human rights, to action on climate change, to women's rights, to we saw recently this played out in really frustrating and really disappointing fashion where a government that has a clearly articulated women problem was given a comprehensive report on how to make workplaces better for women. And they had 55 recommendations that they could have introduced and and legislated, and they managed to legislate six of them. Well, they they ignored 49. For me, that's they ignored 49 of the 55 recommendations that they didn't legislate six. They ignored 49 of them. And that was just so, you, you look at that and you go, okay, yeah, that's frustrating. That's that's really annoying. Yeah, I mean, and it's not just a profound slap in the face to 51% of the population. It's extraordinary tone deafness from a government that's not just on the back foot, but sort of several metres behind the starting line on talking to women and representing women. And as you, and you're completely right, they ignored 49 out of 55 recommendations on how to make a start at making shit better for women. Why women are not rioting in the streets is beyond me, to be perfectly honest. Why young people are not rioting in the streets over our inaction on climate change is beyond me as well. And I mean, feel we that... would, but there's like a there's a there's a lockdown because the government bungled the the vaccines <laughs> and. So... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, pandemics aside, why we're not rioting in the street is extraordinary to me. The issue is that we're actually beyond rioting now. We're beyond protesting that I don't think we want to just stand in the street anymore. We actually want to come to the table and sit down and go, no, we actually need to see change happen because, frankly, the protests haven't worked. 
there's still people sitting in there not listening, no matter how loud loud we're speaking. So we have to change the way that we're speaking. I think you've absolutely nailed it in that you're right, we are past writing. And the only way to you know, introduce systemic change is to take a seat at the table. And if they won't give us a seat at the table, then we we take it, you know, we flip the table over and we get our own table. Because yep. and and I and I say this not just as a woman but as you know someone talking to representatives from our young Democrats team and and your generation what I you know Bianca and I have a running joke about I call it the youth but uh, but the youth should definitely be storming the doors of Parliament and going it is no longer acceptable to have a fifty or sixty something middle aged white man representing us in Parliament we need a young person we need someone who has our lived experience and who shares the fears and concerns and the hopes and the dreams of our generation because I'm 20 odd years older than you two and I'm only just able to connect sort of in terms of pop culture and in terms of um, shared experiences with you two as young women how how is a 60 something white man supposed to be able to understand what it is that you guys want from life and what you want from your politicians and what you want from your government. I think there is always this question of experience there. I think there is that question. I think that that remains as this this word that kind of just hangs in the air all the time. What what experience do you actually have? And you know what? I, I don't have the level of experience. I don't. But I come with a whole heap of other skills. I come with an innovative outset. I come with, we come with so many other skills and assets than just this label of what experience do you have? And the experience that we do have, no, I didn't ride on my bike through the snow doing the the paper run like my dad always tells me and how hard it was because it was 10 kilometres and it was that it was that lived experience and that was his first job. But no, I, I've done quite a few other jobs and I, I, I've listened to customers and I, I now work for a disability organisation and I have experience too. It's just not the same as yours. It's so frustrating sometimes to hear people say, well, you don't have the experience or you're so young. How can you, you know, you don't know everything. It's like, well, yeah, I don't, but it's experience. And I worked in hospitality and that's you know something my parents didn't do and that's something mm. my grandparents didn't do. You know, they got their teacher's college university education paid for. You know, it's it's just a completely different set of experience. We can't compare them. They're not comparable, which is exactly what you said, Rihanna. I think the really important point that you, you both have made, it, it boils down to what experience do we value? And we value a... Yep more sort of anodyne, you know, middle-aged white man experience of, of the world. And that's what's important. And the experience of women, the experience of the LGBTIA plus community, the experience of the disabled community, the experience of people of colour, the trans community, you know, they're not valued. They, they don't have that time behind them. Mm. They, you know, oh, you haven't, you know, you haven't been doing this for so long. Half of those is because we haven't been able to. Just Half of the time that we haven't had women in parliament or people of diverse sexual orientations or Indigenous Australians who are represented in parliament has been because we haven't been able to. So, no, of course I don't have political experience or political knowledge or I I haven't been in that job because you got in at 16 out of high school and I need now first-level entry, five-plus years' experience. No, I don't have that experience because so much of the time now that that is gatekeeping and that mm-hmm. that 
time is something that we judge the quality of your experience by as opposed to the possibility that different experiences can be valued. And this comes back to the first episode of our podcast where Lynn and Steve Beatty and I discussed the you know the right of people, whether it be a one-issue party or whether it be a broader issue party like the Democrats, the right we have to run for parliament. People hold up the Ricky Muir and the Motoring Enthusiast Party accidental Senate seat as a bit of a joke and a bit of a, God, you know, how on earth did that, did that man end up in, in, in this place? It's like, well, no, we need more of him. I don't think Ricky Muir and I share the same philosophy on politics, but his lived experience was extraordinary in comparison to the lawyers and economists and professional politicians that otherwise staff parliament. And, and I think the point that people miss in that is that yeah, we need young people. We need First Nations people and sexually and gender diverse people. We need disabled people in parliament. And the only way to properly represent the country is to be properly representative of the country. And somebody like Ricky Muir, he spoke incredibly movingly in the Senate on what it was like to be unemployed. And nobody else in that place probably had had that experience. And certainly not for probably the last 10 or 20 years of their lives like he had. They might have experienced that when they were younger and first sitting out on their careers. But to be an adult man and speaking with disarming honesty about what it was like to be trying to feed a family on on unemployment benefits, I think shocked them because that was something they'd never heard before. And we need more of that. I think it comes back to kind of that advice Cheryl gave me. Don't go and join a political party. And I, I think in that she wasn't just saying don't be politically active or not even just saying don't go and join a political party, but do something more than that, that it's so important to have diversity in your own individual experience so you can actually contribute that and hopefully expand upon that with someone else and understand their experiences and really really develop yourself as a person. And I, I think that's where we both are at. We're both university students and even for young people, that's a diverse thing, whether you're in full-time employment, you're a tradie, you're at uni, you're a TAFE student, you're a high school student, wherever you're kind of at, those are all diverse experiences. You know, I, I have my work outside of that. I tutor, I go and I, I'm trying at the moment to help out as much as I can in the community as well. Like all those sorts of things, though, give you so many diverse and different experiences that actually contribute to who you are. And then politics, I, I feel, shapes that and actually helps me understand that and helps me understand why all of these different things have come into place. I can't say that politics doesn't apply to any avenue of my life. You know, whether it's the NDIS plans that we're trying to go, well, how is this an equitable thing when their plan is running out within three months and we're, we're still they still need support and we can't do it? For, for uni, when we've got international students who are either stuck here, stuck overseas, can't afford to feed themselves, that how is that right? When you've got people who are going to a community pantry because the government subsidies don't cover it and they're a single mum and that's all they have left and 
the sense of dignity that they have in themselves and all these different avenues of life that comes back to decisions that have been made by our government, whether that's state, federal, submissions put forward by independent or small minor parties as well, like all of those actually all add up and contribute and make a difference down to your neighbour next door. Catherine Murphy from The Guardian wrote one of those fantastic little on books called On Disruption, and she explores the disruption to the media industry from not just the internet, but from this speeded up news cycle and and all that sort of thing. And I, I think my prediction, which obviously is going to be very accurate, is over the next 10 years, that same disruption is going to hit politics. And we've seen it to a degree in the US with Trump and everything else. But I, I think in Australian politics, it's it's going to be a more sort of fundamental shift than than what we saw in the US. And it's going to be really, really fascinating, a few election cycles to see, because mm. I think I'm saying this as someone who watches politics very closely, who can probably be accurately accused of being a little bit tribal. And it's not just the fracturing of the political consensus in this country where tribalism has become quite profound and, and quite a, a, a strong sort of oppositional tribalism happening. I think we're heading toward a tipping point with our the country's relationship with its government as it's represented by the Morrison government because it's not just that they're, they're unrepresentative, they're doing a really bad job of governing us. And it's, and it's sort of, as you said, it's the melting tip of the iceberg. You know, the Turnbull government was not great. The Abbott government less great. The Rudd-Gillard-Rudd governments could have been great but were beset by infighting, but they at least still seem to have some notion of a vision of the, for the country and some mm. basic sort of competence and basic functionality. And they got um, shit done, you know. It is, Whereas yeah. this one you just, there's summits and, and there's whatever else that just feel like they go nowhere sometimes. I think this period in, in and it's not purely just that the Morrison government has dropped the ball and they have been focused entirely on the announcements and haven't seemed to have either the wish or the skill to actually deliver anything. I don't think it is specifically a Morrison government issue. I think they're just they're just probably the catalyst for it. But I think over the next 10 years, that reckoning is going to be huge. What we have accepted for far too long as a way of doing politics in this country. And as we spoke about at the start of the podcast about the way Parliament House is built for men, the way the political process is built for men, on the assumption that it will be men doing the politics, I think that's going to get turned on its head. And it I think rise Exactly. It has to because it's it stopped working for us quite some time ago. But I think the rise of the independence movement, I think the rise of female candidates, both in the independents and in minor parties, I think that they're going to be the crest of the wave that crashes onto Parliament House and mm. hopefully ushers in a new way of governing the country. It's so exciting to see that hope that we have for the future that we have in the Young Dems. I think, yeah, it's very encouraging. Yeah, and I think it's, it's it reflects like the great opportunities, not just joining a political party, but joining a minor party can mm. offer because minor parties, we're all staffed by volunteers, we get no taxpayer funding, we exist on you know, the love of our volunteers and the donations of our members. And so there's extraordinary opportunities for young people to come along and just learn stuff. 
What I want to say to any sort of, you know, younger listeners, if you want to join the party, join the Young Democrats and work with people like Rhiannon and Bianca and Adrian, you don't have to be a policy nerd or you don't, you don't have to know any of the stuff, I guess is what I'm getting at. Bianca, you said to me before you joined, you had no idea how politics and how our political system actually worked. Yeah, something that I you didn't just... know the ins and outs of preferential voting and stuff, which plays such an integral role in who gets elected. I didn't know about that. And it's it's not that it's difficult stuff to learn. It's it's really not. But it's been brainwashed to us that it is. And that's that's the point that they want us to be confused. They want us to sort of be disengaged. And, and just to add to that as well, not needing to be a, a political nerd is so important. And as well, you don't need to be passionate about every single thing. Like we have young Dems who are really passionate about privacy and online security and that sort of a thing. And that's their thing. There's a place for everyone. Sort of, it's you don't have to be a feminazi who is part of the extinction rebellion and is so is and also a refugee advocate and everything. You don't have to be every single person. You can just do that one thing that you're passionate about because there's space for it. Sort of a thing. Even if you don't have an overriding passion for one particular topic, even if you just want to make a difference or you want to learn. I mean, before we started recording, I was saying to you guys how much I've learned through the party. And it's not just politics. I mean, I've learned to edit video. I've learned to write political analysis. Hell, I've learned how to do a podcast, which if someone had said to me two years ago when I joined that I would end up being the host of the of the party's podcast, I would have laughed my head off at them because that was not on my radar on any, on any level. If you want to learn about politics, if you want to contribute to politics, we're totally here for you as young people. But there's also stuff that you can bring to the party. So don't ever think for a second that you can't possibly join or you can't possibly volunteer because you don't have what it takes. I mean, literally everybody has what it takes. It's the extraordinary breadth of passion and knowledge and skills that the team have. And I think some of them never dreamt for a minute that their particular skill set would be useful, but everything is useful. And only through stepping up and helping out and trying to make a difference are we as a nation going to change our politics? The other thing with minor parties that I've absolutely loved is not only the support that you get from the people that are immediately around you because you're not a part of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, you're getting direct support from a few really great people and that's been awesome. But as well, the fact that we're based on evidence but the fact that we also have the freedom to really be moderate and discuss things if we... If I want to bring something to you and you might go, oh, hang on, no, we might, might just fix that a little bit. You know, there's not a particular, we have, our, we have our values and we have the things that we'll always stick to, but there's so much more freedom in what we can explore in terms of information. And I am so eternally grateful for the amount of knowledge that I've gained from being part of a minor party. It's, it's insane. It's insane. I think just the knowledge, but, I don't think I've ever felt more respected, truly yes. respected oh as a as a, a person, as, not as I'm not a student in it. I'm not a I'm not a child. I'm I, I'm not I'm not just a woman. I'm not anything that I'm genuinely just another party member who follows the same four core promises and agrees with the same things. And I have been able to have those conversations and felt so respected in everything I've said or contributed and even because I say some dumb stuff like some dumb stuff I'm not I'm not gonna 
yeah, I'm not covering up for that. But even when I say that really dumb stuff, nobody makes me feel dumb for it. Instead, they go, so what's kind of driving your thought there? And generally, it is something that's a little bit better behind it. But I was then kind of coached and encouraged to continue to share what I wanted to say. It was never put down at any point. Going to national executive meetings where Lynn's there as a as former senator, there's the state leaders who are responsible for quite a few people and I can speak in that meeting and feel so comfortable that what I say is actually going to be heard and listened to and might actually contribute to something or will contribute to something within the party itself. It's It's been a, a second to none experience for me to actually feel like, a, yeah, I, I can't even explain it. It's been fantastic. And I know, Bianca, you've got all these amazing graphic design skills that you've developed, but just an awareness of kind of cultural trends, of political trends alongside that. You have this amazing ability to digest very recent news and everything like that. But I think for all of our young Dems, there's so many other skills that they've kind of gone their own avenues down. For me, I feel like I... I've learned so many organisational skills. I've learned how to write meeting agendas, minutes, how to present a proposal, how to then write my own articles and actually have my voice heard. I've learned interviewing people, what I actually need to be looking for there. I've learned auditing skills. I've learned parts of website skills or how to, does that all then fit together to actually form an organisation? Earlier today, I sent Lynn a message and she went yeah no worries I'm free at five we'll jump on and have a chat about the party governance and was perfectly happy to listen to my different thoughts on how I was reflecting on my work and kind of what I'd learnt there and then bringing that across and she went yeah that's actually awesome I'll have a look into this we've got somebody already on to that over there and chatted with me for a good hour, like just going through all these different things that didn't feel rushed at the whole time. There was just this level of respect that I haven't been able to ever achieve anywhere else. I might just add a little another um, personal anecdote there. Like in terms of the writing of the articles, I never in my life thought I would write something even remotely in that arena. Um, But then when I was given the opportunity to and given the respect and the guidance and the support, and then I had that published and then I went on the Facebook page and I got comments on it. It was the most incredible feeling. I was like, oh, that's really cool. Someone actually appreciates what I have to say. And it was it was that immediate genuine feedback that sometimes as a young person, you might post something on your story or you might try and talk to your grandparents about something even and you just don't feel heard a lot of the time. But then when you can write something and you can get that feedback, it's it's a really amazing feeling. It's awesome. And I think it was actually on your article, Bianca, there was actually somebody commented and kind of questioned a couple of the things that you said in there. Yes. And yeah. there was immediately like multiple people that jumped on and went, oh, well, she said this for X, Y, and Z. And, you know, there was no issues here and it was fine here. And I was like, all right, Bianca's fine. No worries at all. Even in that, though, whilst it wasn't the most positive thing, it was still that there was this understanding and somebody was genuinely invested in what you were saying, enough to actually ask questions and open up this opportunity for discussion and for sharing those ideas a little bit further. So even in those instances, it actually ends up being a really, really positive thing that you learn a lot from. 
And I just want to say that the discussion that your article triggered on Facebook wasn't among members of the party. It was the members mm. of the public. So you got to connect with people in the electorate who you would never normally have interacted with on an issue that meant a huge amount to you. And it was a robust discussion, but it was respectful and it opened up avenues of perspective that I don't think any of the people taking part in that discussion or reading the comments would have seen otherwise. And and I think in a nutshell, you've, you've nailed, I feel a little bit saying, silly saying this, but that's the power of politics that in the, at its core should be what politics is actually about, as opposed to the professionalisation and factionalization and, and uh, gravy training. Tribalism. Tribalism. That's the word I saw the other day and I, yeah. I, I've, I've, I've been using it ever since. But the, the tribalism of the two main parties, even though they seem to look very similar these days, there is just so much animosity and, and tension that you just really is not appealing at all. And and it's just, because it's not helpful, it's, it's not going to help find solutions to the problems that we need solved. It is between those two major parties, but it is between this right and this left wing of politics that everybody mm. has to apparently fit into either side of those. And the Labor Party tells the Liberal Party that they fit into one side and the Liberal Party tells the Labor Party that they fit into one side. But really, you're both sitting on the same side and neither of you even know which it is. It's this factioning of our system, this tribalism, I love that word. Thank you for introducing that to me. But it is this I have to find the journalist who system. used it because it was awesome, but that didn't, didn't come from me. Um. <laughs> I love that. We pay credit to our sources. Evidence-based, <laughs> always. <laughs> and, you know, it, I, think, I think the great liberating aspect for the Democrats in hewing to an evidence-based approach is that we're set free from that tribalism and that left and right divide. And we go where the evidence takes us. And I think sometimes where, you know, where the evidence leads us to can confound both of those extremes of politics. Because again, it's about either meeting a need or solving a problem. And as Lynn said in a previous episode, the two major parties, that they're not incentivized to collaborate and make legislation better, because that would mean making one of, one of the other look good. And they're not there for that. And she had, I think, a really prescient quote in that she said two major parties are at war, not over issues, but over who gets to govern the country. And I think that's the, the real defining difference between the two majors and what minor parties and independents can bring to the political protest, because minor parties and independents are focused on their communities. They're focused on doing things for the good of the nation. And we can force the major parties into a discussion or a detente on how to actually achieve the right thing by the country instead of this eternal war over who gets to put their butts on the on the treasury benches. Going back to the things that tick the boxes was that what made us so successful in the Senate was that we were evidence-based, but we were also compassionate. And that, and that compassion led us to collaboration. And that's what made us get legislation through. It's about being evidence-based, but it's also about applying the compassion to that and really taking what is best for Australians and how can we how can we marry these two things together and then collaborate with others because we're stronger together, all that sort of thing. It's just that for me that was it was the compassion married with the evidence that just, just made sense. 
Guys, I cannot thank you enough for coming along and talking to me and nerding out with me on all things to do with politics, not just for women, but for young people and for people in general. It's It's been absolutely wonderful. And I really hope to have you on again at a later stage. Thank you so much for having me, Alana. It's been an absolute pleasure. Ditto. I'd love to come on again soon too. Fantastic. We'll find a, a reason to bring you on. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. It wasn't until I edited this episode that I realised that we never mentioned the nature of the article that Bianca wrote for the Democrats, so I've put a link to it in the show notes. It was written in the red-hot aftermath of the revelations around the alleged assault of Brittany Higgins in Parliament House. And Bianca presents not just those events, but the dichotomy in the frequently stated need for more women to get involved in politics against the backdrop of the suddenly very public hostility towards women inherent in those same politics. Working with our young Democrats is really one of the most rewarding aspects of being involved in a political party, because all cliches aside, they really are our future. And I think our future will be incredibly bright in their hands. They're also justifiably enraged at the future that we're handing to them, not just on climate or health, but with the kind of society we've built for them. They deserve better from their elders than unaffordable and inaccessible housing, increasing inequality, a looming climate crisis, and insecure and poorly paid work. If you'd like to get involved in building a better future, not just for our kids, but for ourselves, you can join us at democrats.org.au. We're still working on getting the 1,500 members required to retain our registration and comply with the party pooper bill by 2nd of December 2021. Without registration, we can't contest the election and you won't be able to vote for us. So if you're not currently a member of a political party, please consider joining us, if for no other reason than to help us get the numbers we need. The restoration of accountability, transparency and honesty in politics is not going to happen without a concerted effort by we the people electing representatives that are committed to those values. So we really appreciate your support. Keep the Bastards Honest is brought to you by the Australian Democrats. This episode was edited and produced by me, Alana Mitchell. If you'd like to keep in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by searching for Australian Democrats and you can see what we stand for, what we value and what our policy positions are at our website at democrats.org.au. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.